0: Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Ellen Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are. The Definitive Rap.
1: I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. We thank VIN News for hosting our show. I have always been fascinated by books written by those who traveled back to Europe to investigate and research the lives of their ancestors who lived through the Holocaust. Today's guest, Mariel Schindler, whom Bela will introduce shortly, is the author of The Lost Café Schindler. Café Schindler was built by her uncles, Hugo and Eric, in the early 1900s, and was considered the place to be in Innsbruck, Austria, where they served the best pastries and featured the most talented musicians for dance nights. The Café, though under a different name, is still operating today. This book, however, is not about a Café, but about family history Nazi plundering of Jewish businesses and property, attempts at reclamation, and a search for truth and closure years after the war. Our guest discovered her father's papers in 2017 after his passing, which served as a link to his family back in Austria, going back to the late 1800s and early 1900s, including family members who served in the Austrian military during World War I. Mariel discovers that her great-uncle, Edward Bloch, was an incredible medical doctor who took care of everyone, rich and poor, at any time of day or night. Mariel Schindler discovers that her uncle, Edward, was given special protection during the Nazi onslaught of Austria because, during the early 1900s, Dr. Bloch treated Hitler's mother for breast cancer and treated young Adolf Hitler himself. There were a lot of lessons from this book, which showed that even Jews who were fully assimilated with their non-Jewish neighbors were not spared from the Nuremberg Laws or Nazi-inspired anti-Semitism. And as the author wrote, there were so few Jews in this part of Austria for neo-Nazis to even blame their problems on. We will talk about this and the rest of her fascinating book during today's show. Bela?
2: Thank you, Alan. I often talk about being a child of Holocaust survivors, and as such, anything remotely familiar with the topic, I will get my hands on to read. It never ceases to amaze me that no matter how many years pass by, there are always more stories that come to the surface, bringing the atrocities to life again and again. This is part of history. The Holocaust will never, ever be forgotten. The book, The Lost Café Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth, which was published by W.W. Norton on October 12th, centers around the Café Schindler, the social hub of Innsbruck. Famous for its pastries, as Alan said, home-distilled liquors, live entertainment and hospitality, the Café became an eyewitness to the history that we know. As conditions for the Jews became unbearable, The Schindlers were forced to leave and the cafe was no longer the place for jazz and apple strudel, but a place for Nazi officers to go clubbing and drinking. I remember quite a few years ago, I read the book written by Bridget Hammond that is based on a diary of Dr. Edward Block, who treated Hitler's mother for breast cancer, something of the Lost Cafe Schindler touches upon as well. This is a true story about our guest grandfather, Hugo's Cafe. But it is really also about making true what had been falsified by her father, Kurt. The Lost Cafe Schindler recreates the journey of an extraordinary family whose relatives, according to Kurt, included the Jewish doctor who treated Hitler's mother when she was dying of breast cancer, Franz Kafka, Oskar Schindler, and Alma Schindler, the wife of Gustav Mahler. But was any of that true? Let's find out. Our guest, Mariel Schindler, is an employment lawyer, partner, and head of a team at Withers LLP, a law firm, and is a patron of Arvon, the writing charity. She lives in London with her husband, Jeremy, and has three adult children. This is her first book, and I'm sure one of many to follow. Mariel, all the way from London, welcome to The Definitive Wrap. It's an honor and a pleasure to join you from London. Um, Mariel, thank you very much. Mariel, you have written this book, and not just as an author recounting history, history as you have heard or or um, searched, researched, but the reader can sense your dynamic personality. You are bringing this book to life. My question is, as you unravel your family history, including the truth behind what happened on Kristallnacht when the Nazis beat your grandfather and left him for dead. Can you please share with our audience the untold story of the faith of the Jews of Western Austria and about the rise of anti-Semitism and the Nazi occupation?
3: Thank you very much. Um, You've done a very, very good job summarizing it between the two of you. Um, I think what is interesting about this part of Austria is that most people, when they think about Austria, they think about Vienna. Vienna had, was overrun with Jews. It was 10, they formed 10 percent of the population in Vienna. In Western Austria, so where Innsbruck is situated, in the Tyrol, in the mountains, there were very, very few Jews. But that's not to say that there wasn't anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism lay beneath the surface and was rife. Now, the Jews that did exist and lived very happily in Innsbruck were largely very assimilated. And they formed a tiny fraction of the population of Innsbruck where my family, most of my family came from. And they were largely merchants and business people. And certainly my grandfather was born and bred in the Tyrol and he loved the Tyrol. So for him, in a sense, the peak of his um, assimilation as, as, a, as a person, as a citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was the moment in 1914 when he put on his Kaiser's uniform. He put on Kaiser Franz Joseph's uniform and he fought for his Kaiser. He fought for the Austro-Hungarian Empire and to stop it disintegrating. So that was clearly a pivotal moment in his young life. And he fought both on the Eastern Front, but mostly on, on the Southern Front. And that is, a, a in a sense, a, a part of the First World War that's not been very often described. I think, I mean, the Americans are very lucky because they had Hemingway, who describes it in a farewell to arms. But that's pretty much the only description that we have in contemporary literature of it. And there aren't even that many historical books on it. There's, I think there's one American academic who oddly enough is called Schindler um, and, and, and another a, a British academic who's written about it. It was called the White War. And why was it called the White War? It was fought on mountainous slopes. So when we think of the first world war, we have images often, for, certainly for the, for the British and I think largely for the Americans of Flanders, of the mud, of the trenches, of endless flat land, blasted landscapes but this was very different this was fought up in the mountains on really vertiginous slopes and it was a very intimate war the it was the Austrians largely fighting the Italians the Austrians were largely on the top of the mountains and the Italians were largely fighting their way up the mountains you can imagine how that didn't go very well for most of the Italians and it was intimate in the sense that the fronts were often six twelve feet apart they weren't they, you know people were cowering behind very very low walls in this war and it was a brutal war it was a really brutal war and you were as likely to get swept off the mountain by uh, an avalanche as you were to die from a gas attack that you couldn't foresee where it was going to come from because of the winds Um, and you were often as a soldier stranded up on top of a mountain for weeks and weeks at a time you could die of toothache you could die of tonsillitis or you could die of a sniper's bullet so it was a it was a really really I mean all war is horrible but it was I think a particularly brutal war and particularly brutal for someone who loved mountains. My, my grandfather adored the mountains. So he survived, His one of his brothers didn't, His one of his brothers died, but he returned to Innsbruck. And Innsbruck at that point was a broken city. It was destitute. Um, the, the various treaties that the allies had in, in their wisdom imposed on Germany and Austria had basically led to utter destitution. Um, we know that the Treaty of Versailles was very much um, repudiated by the Germans, and we had the Treaty of Saint Germain en Laye in Austria. It, what that did is it stripped the empire, which had by then fallen apart, into its constituent parts and left it as a rump state, which effectively couldn't feed itself. And that was particularly, particularly the case in, in Innsbruck. So, Innsbruck surrounded by mountains, and it had drawn a lot of its goods. To keep itself going from the south Tyrol, what became Italy and that's the, the bit over the Brenner Pass had been gifted to the Italians after the first world war as recompense for coming into the war and so you know he my grandfather returned to this destitute city which was you know economically on its knees kids were starving in the street and he did the most extraordinary thing he opened a cafe A dance cafe. I mean, utterly frivolous against that economic backdrop. And it was hugely successful. So anyone who was, anyone, danced there. And when I went to school in Austria, when I was in, in, when I was 15, I went to school in Austria. Um, Even with my name, and even though it was decades after the cafe hadn't existed, the moment I mentioned my name to the parents of my friends, or to the grandparents of my friends, they went, ah, the cafe Schindler, I used to dance there. I used to meet my boyfriend in secret there. So it would absolutely lived on in the zeitgeist of the people who lived in the town. And, um, you know, it, it was a very special place. It was triple fronted building on the main street. And as you say, it was an eyewitness to history. Anything that happened in that small town flowed beneath the windows of the cafe. So it, it absorbed in a sense the history of, of that time. Um, you roll on to 1938 as you rightly say the Nazis arrived and the first thing they did was move into our villa we we owned the nicest town ta- that nicest house in town and they took the cafe and the, the the liquor factory and the jam factory off my grandparents and um they they then emigrated um in various stages at various times um and and, and they emigrated to London that's why I'm sensibly British, but I also have an Austrian passport nowadays. You know, That's so a little bit
1: of a story. One of the reasons I loved your book—I mean, I loved it—that um, you brought so much history there, because I read a lot of books, and I—I I have a treasure trove of books about the Holocaust. I still try to wrap my head around everything. My parents were both born in France. I'll tell you about that a little bit later, but. When historians write books about this, you know, they write long books because they want to prove their mettle as a historian. I'm a Ph.D., so I'm going to give you Ph.D. Your book was very human about the history of the rise of anti-Semitism. So let me go back to the beginning. You had a troubled relationship with your father. It happens. Um, And you said he was a hoarder. I'm the same way, which is why I have this background instead of the background of my apartment. (laughs) And you're going through the paper, all the papers you left, and I'm guessing you didn't expect. Like you open up, say, "Okay, here's a piece of paper from this paper, that, garbage, garbage, garbage." And then you're like, "Uh-oh, there's stuff here." So, what what did you pick up, and what stuck with you that, "Oh my God, there was so much more to my father and history." That kind of set you off on your journey, uh, to you know, to to go back in time.
3: I think it really was a search for truth, Alan. When you say I had a troubled relationship with my father, I mean, that is is absolutely true. I mean, my father was tall, handsome. He was a raconteur. He was incredibly entertaining, but he had a terribly distant relationship with truth or put another way, as a lawyer, I would say he was a liar. He lied about a lot of things, but there was often a tiny grain of something that was the origin that was probably true, but it was embellished. So when he died, I was left with an awful, he died destitute and I was left with a lot of anecdotes in my head. And being a lawyer is something, you know, it, 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 it almost compelled me to try and find out what had actually happened. I had, for a large part of my adult life discounted many of the stories he told, because when he said, oh, we're related to Kafka or "We're related to Alma Mahler or related to Bruno Kreisky, the first president of of Austria after the war. You know, I just said, yeah, how? And he could never answer that. And this is obviously pre Internet as well. So, you know, I think you'd have had a great fun with online genealogy personally. but um, and so my, my that what what compelled me to to pick up the papers in his cottage and sift through them was first of all to make sure we were chucking out the right stuff and it, it was the most I mean it was like it, when people talk about a Kafkaesque mess it was absolutely that there were towering papers piles on every surface on the floor everywhere and. We went down there. I went down with my sister and our two husbands and we tried to sift this stuff to try and pack up what we thought was relevant and important. And I didn't know at that point I was going to write a book. In fact, I boxed up a lot of the papers because I felt they were too frightening to look at. They were emblazoned with swastikas. And although I read fluent German, reading through stuff with your family name on it and Heil Hitler uh, all over it is not a pleasant thing to do. So I, I largely boxed them up. But the thing I came back to time and again were photo albums. Now, oddly, these were family photo albums that I'd never seen. Some of them had been in the attic and I hadn't ever seen them. And some of them had been hanging around, but I wasn't interested in them as a kid. They're tiny black and white photos. They're not terribly engaging. And like so many photo albums from that year, and I'm sure it's the same for both your families, they didn't write the names underneath them. They they expected to be able to orally pass on who was in the picture. And of course he was gone. And I had no idea who were these people in long frocks with bonnets on, on sledges. What the most, most inappropriate thing to be you know, on a, on a toboggan in a, in a long frock, who were these people? And so I, I, I was curious, I've always been curious and I was trying to, it was a search for truth. It was trying to try and work out who, who we were related to, whether any of the stories he told were true And I suppose to try and lay to rest what had been, you know, a really quite a troubled relationship with him. And I think that's what I largely, largely did in it.
2: Mariel, um, you talk about uh, your father, Kurt, um, who had either a faulty memory or an interesting relationship with the truth. So what were some of the more outlandish things he told you about your family and, Were any of them ever true? I
3: think there are two very good examples and they are, they are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Okay. So um, the first one is the Kristallnacht story. And the second one is the Bloch story. So the, the Kristallnacht story, which I mean, nowadays people tend to call this the November pogrom because Kristallnacht is simply too poetic a name for what was actually a night of hideous violence. And the way my father told that story was that, you know, some Nazi thugs knocked on the door in the middle of the night. He was present. My father said he he witnessed the fact that they broke into the flat that they were living in and they picked up a toboggan, his childhood toboggan, my father's childhood toboggan one of those classic Austrian toboggans, beautiful wooden hooped toboggan with metal runners underneath it to stop the wood splintering on the snow. And they smashed the toboggan over my grandfather's head. And my father described that to me. He described it to my kids. And we grew up with this story that he was an eyewitness to this horrendous attack on his father, my grandfather. There's only one thing wrong with that story. attack took place, my father was 13 and he was safely in London and I have categoric evidence of that because I have his childhood photo album where he writes in it first day in London with mummy September 1938. Now there's no way on this earth that his mother who was in London sent him back to Austria, she just had him rescued from Austria, he wasn't there, he was never there but he used this story of, of a, being an eyewitness to a severe beating, which my grandfather survived, but only just. Um, he was very, very lucky. Um, you know, He used this, this business of being an eyewitness to something as horrific as your father being beaten up in front of you as essentially an excuse for the way he behaved most of his life, and, as well as a lot of other things that he said happened to him. So that, that story happened, but there was... The key part of it, that he was witness to it, didn't happen. That was made up. And when I look back on it, it's very difficult. Memory is a very tricky thing. And I think even you know, as a lawyer, when I take a witness statement from someone, I have to be very, very careful not to prompt them too much, not to put stuff in front of them, evidence in front of them that creates false memory. You're looking for true testimony. You have to download it from the person and then you have to test it. And with him, what I think happened, he just wrote, he overwrote and overwrote and over, he told this story repeatedly. And I think he came to believe it because he certainly, I don't think he understood he was lying. So that's where, that's the one story. Now, the other story that I, I had always believed the Chris Dalmach story, the other story by contrast that I never believed and totally discounted was the fact that um, he said, my uncle was, a nice doctor in Upper Austria, in Linz, Hitler's favorite town. And um, he treated Hitler's mother and he treated Hitler and he was Jewish. Now, as far as I was concerned, this was a nonsense because, you know, Hitler certainly, although he didn't start out necessarily as a Jew hater, he obviously became, (laughs) he became one when he moved to Vienna. And it seemed to me, utterly incredible that his family would have been treated by a Jewish doctor. Uh, it's it also seemed pretty incredible that the Jewish doctor would have survived the war. However, when I researched it, I found that there was indeed a Dr. Bloch. I went to Linz and it's clear that he lived there. Um, and you, know, you can find traces of him in the local archives. He was a you know, staunch member of the local Jewish community, but more to the point, he emigrated very late to New York. And his own personal testimony, all 42 pages of t- closely written script, is in the Washington Holocaust Museum, one of the most brilliant museums in the world. And, you know, I-, I requested that they digitalize it, which they have now done. And you can read his own account of the days that he treated Hitler and how Clara Hitler, Hitler's mother, in 1907, arrived in his surgery. He describes her as a good-looking woman in her middle age with very luminescent gray eyes, a very sort of, you know, beautiful woman and she's complaining of terrible chest pain and the good doctor, hes he's been, treat- he's, he's been trained in, in women's medicine and he, he pretty much guesses what's wrong and he takes her name and he examines her and discovers she's got advanced breast cancer and he doesn't tell her at that moment what you know, that it's pretty much a death sentence, as the doctor tell, says it in his biography, he 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 sends her away and says, look, come back with your family, and I'm going to explain what will need to happen. A couple of days later, she reappears in the surgery, and she has young Adolf Hitler, age 17, in tow. And the good doctor explains that she will need a double mastectomy, and that he will organise it. And the effect, and he describes the effect on Adolf Hitler, who is an adolescent boy who clearly adores his mother. Absolutely, he talks about the strong bond that he can see between them and how there are tears streaming down Adolf Hitler's face and that he will do, he he promises to do his best for Clara. And he organises the operation. He is present during the operation and the moment the operation is over, he goes and visits the young family and says, look, it's gone as well as can be expected. We'll just have to see how she recovers. And she makes a bit of a recovery. I mean, she dies about a year later. And, you know, he looks after her in a very dedicated fashion throughout that period. Hitler is on the scene there, he takes over some of the household chores. And, you know, they have a bond. And, you know, roll on to 1938, Hitler arrives back in Linz, his favourite city, he hated Vienna. He has huge plans for Linz. It's It's his town, he's going to build art galleries in fact all he does actually is build the Hermann Goering works just outside Linz which is then a um, and uh, very much a goal of bombing for for the allies but anyway um and he arrives Hitler arrives back in Linz this huge you know invading hero if you like to crowds on the street to adulation and one of the things he asks is is my doctor still alive the good Dr Bloch and some of the cronies say yeah yeah he's still alive and he goes, "Yeah, if all Jews were like him, we wouldn't have a problem. So he really was this protected man, and that that story was repeated by various people to his daughter. so yeah. it's got you know good roots. and he he really was um, protected. and so whenever there was some new law that came out that they had to give in their ration cards or had the J stamped on it had their phones taken away. None of that applied to Dr. Bloch. So his little flat in Linz became a sort of meeting point for all the Jews who were trying to escape from Austria, from from that part of Austria. And he tried to help and eventually emigrated himself. Um, And there's some fantastic tales uh, around that time around how the fact that, you know, Hitler, when he'd gone to Vienna, had sent him a couple of postcards saying, you know, One of them was the hand, one of those hand painted ones that Hitler we know did in Vienna. And uh, he hand painted it and gave it that sort of antique appearance by sort of drying it in front of a gas fire. And he signed it, you know, you're eternally grateful, Hitler. And and so, you know, he and and oddly, the doctor had kept these tiny mementos from this patient. And when the Nazis arrived in Linz in 38, they took the cards off him. And Bloch had this sort of eternal mission to try and track down the cards. And he presented himself to the, the, chief, the chief of the SS, which was a very brave thing to do for, for, for a Jewish doctor at that time. And um, the, the, the head of the SS sort of sits him down and says, well, yeah, I'd love to hear about my Fuhrer and how you treated him. And you know, it's also a very warm and sort of you know, congenial atmosphere. And he says, well, I don't understand why the cards were taken off you. Are you in some way politically suspect? The doctor goes, No, no, I've just been dedicated to you know looking after people as a doctor. And suddenly it dawns on this SS officer that he, he's actually got a Jew in front of him and that he's greeted him warmly. And 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 um Bloch describes how a wall of ice is thrown up, and the man can't even can barely bring himself to shake hands with him at the end of the interview. And he leans across and says, Yeah, but your Fuhrer shook hands with me on many occasions, and it's like this this sort of perfect riposte to this SS officer who who's suddenly been taken unawares that he's been actually entertaining a Jew in his office rather than beating them up on the streets which is what he was normally doing so it's quite a it's it's a lovely sort of vignette of 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 that that period in that time and a very exceptional man and it was completely true but I of course totally discounted it when I was growing up because it just seemed incredible
1: right so it's funny when I first read about it early in the book I thought, okay, here is an interesting, you know, footnote of the book. You know, she discovers that her uncle treated, you know, little Hitler and his mother. But then later on, I mean, you write about more expense extensively, as you just mentioned. He was given special privileges; he was protected. And I was just wondering, in your mind, because you are a very inquisitive person, did it make and did it make you think? Because it made me think that there were many Jewish doctors in Europe, and Hitler said, oh, and. So did like say, wait a second, here is one good Jew. There were tons of Jewish doctors. Were there other Nazis who said, wait a second, we got to be good to him because he treated you. We know Jewish doctors also. So wait a second. Are we turning on the Jews? Are we not? Did any of this make you wonder how this one Jewish doctor stood out and how it didn't breed resentment amongst other Nazis? I don't know.
3: I don't know. I I, I don't know. I mean, there is the term Edeljude, which is noble, Edel is noble, noble Jew. Mm. And this is apparently a term that was used amongst the sort of Nazi hierarchy. And I think there were occasional other examples of sort of you know, it's a bit like a white person saying, I've got a, I've got a black friend sometimes, you know, that sort of tokenism of, okay, this is an exceptional person, I'm going to protect them. And I think there's a little bit of that going on. Um, Did it, I don't think it had any effect really on, obviously, what was going on for the vast majority of the Jews in Austria. I mean, you know, we lost 65,000 Jews in Austria. Um, You know, and, and, you know, as has been said, you know, the the Austrians were very, very good anti-Semites. They were not so good Nazis, but they were very good anti-semites. Yeah.
2: Mariel, did you know that you were Jewish growing up?
3: I did, but um, your it's a very it's a very poignant question because my father was one of that generation who said to us, "Don't tell anyone you were Jewish." So we were very, very. He married out. He, my mother was not Jewish, and he was very clear that this was a secret and you shouldn't tell anyone. Now. You know, from his point of view, I can see that, you know, being Jewish was dangerous. So I can see that, you know, you can interpret it in lots of ways. You can say he's a you know, self-hating Jew or you can say, actually, he was just trying to protect his two daughters. And you know, in a world that he felt was uncertain and unsafe. And he, he always felt the world was unsafe. You know, if it wasn't Nazis, there were communists. If it wasn't communists, there were socialists. I mean, frankly, the world was a very unsafe place from his point of view.
1: When you first began your journey, um, again, I don't know how far, I didn't know how far you thought this this, this was ever going to go, but you bring your kids with you. And I read in your book that your kids went with you through the Alps. And I'm thinking as a kid, were they saying, mom, I want to stay home and play with my Xbox. Why are you doing this to me? Or were they like, were, were they as intrigued as you were and saying, you know what, this is cool. Grandpa, Kurt, you know, had some cool stories. You know, what was... What was their, How was your family support with all of this?
3: I think my family were amazingly forgiving. Um, as I disappeared for weeks at a time to 1938 and basically lived there for three years, um, I thought they were phenomenally forgiving. I mean, I, I have to say I did engage in a bit of sleight of hand so that, uh, you know, when I talked about the fantastic whitewater rafting holiday we were going to go to in Slovenia, really at the back of my head was of this extraordinary First World War Museum in Kobarid I wanted to see, which happens to be near a whitewater rafting centre. So we had to combine these things. So it was whitewater rafting one day and then it was let's walk up this mountain so that we can look at the trenches the next day. Now, I, they happen to be quite quite sort of athletic kids and they do like mountain walking. But a seven-hour hike up Mount Crum to look at various first-world war fortifications was a little bit on the long side for some of them. So,
2: oh.
1: yeah, but in there the you- end, they were probably as you know as amazed as you were about the whole story.
3: Yeah, I think I mean they're 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 very proud of the book, right. um, and I think you know they they watched me struggle with my relationship with my father, and I think they feel happy that. I have unraveled that to such an extent that I can, I feel I've laid that to, laid that to peace.
1: Okay.
2: I love how descriptive you are, Mariel. So can you please describe Cafe Schindler? Can you like, bring us there, recreate the setting? I mean, you're just amazing. I, I love how you sound and, and I just love yeah. how you describe things. And I just, I just want to picture it right now. And, and really for our audience sake, because I, I read the book, I'm picturing it, but you know, bring our audience there. Okay, so yeah. let's imagine
3: we are nineteen twenty eight, twenty-nine, that around that sort of time. Sort of you, you imagine in the US you've got your jazz era just, just pretty much going full blast at that point. And what my grandfather managed to create was a jazz era in miniature. He loved music. So you would go in through the shop on the ground floor, which sold um, wooden boxes of chocolates and crystallized fruit and coffee and you would go up a beautiful sweeping staircase with a beautiful and I've seen pictures of it with a beautiful bannister wooden bannister that takes you up to the first floor and as you arrive at the first floor this is not some restaurant where you just sit down on your own you are shown to a banquette, and you're shown to a banquette by a MetroD who takes your hat and coat and you settle at your banquette. And you can look out of the window and the bonquets are at right angles to the window so that you can see straight up to the mountains and you can just see the baroque bit of the old part of town. And aside from that, the sort of frontage of the of the houses opposite are very pretty, again, very baroque, lots of different colours, beautiful carvings. And you probably order. What are we what are we ordering Bela, today? Coffee and cake? Maybe. Yeah, maybe coffee and strudel, mm-hmm. apple strudel. And that's brought to you on a starched white tablecloth by a waiter with a glass of water. And it's brought to you in style. And there's a bit of style. And if you're on your own, that's fine. You sit and you read the newspaper. That's brought to you stretched on those lovely wooden poles. This is a classic European coffee house. The same that you would see in Vienna, the same that you would see in Paris. And in a sense, those coffee houses were places to hang out i mean when 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 you guys brought starbucks to the world Mm. you were reinventing the coffee house you were reinventing that third space that people could go from their homes and from their offices and meet there which was a neutral third space where they just served incredible coffee and i said my my grandfather liked music um there was i've seen some of the Um, diaries for the events there. And there were like three or four events a week. It must have been exhausting. Um, And he had all sorts of, I mean, Alan's already mentioned, he had all sorts of um, famous singers who came, but also he loved jazz. So when jazz arrived in Austria, much later, obviously, because it came from the US, um, he, he, he threw open his doors and invited jazz musicians in. And one of the things I love about that, first of all, is the fact that obviously the Nazis banned jazz, and he was my my grandfather was a staunch uh, supporter of jazz. But my son has just started studying jazz, and it feels like there's this real connection that he's now studying um, something that my grandfather and his great grandfather
1: absolutely love. Yeah. So I have a two part question. Um, In the book, you talk about you know the famous apple strudel. And the first thing that came to my mind, and I don't know why, was the scene in *Inglorious Bastards when Colonel uh, Lan- Landa, and then later on in the book, you reference *Inglorious Bastards. I'm thinking, okay, there's a connection between us, Mariel. And, you know, again, French is a much nicer language than German. And if you remember that scene where uh, he had Shoshana with him, and they bring this through and he goes, ah, 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 you must put on, you know, in the French, la crème. So I don't know if that's what they served also in Café Schindler, but yeah. to your knowledge, are there any other landmarks in Europe today that were started by Jews that are still standing, that have the same pinage as Café Schindler?
3: I, I can't talk for the whole of Europe. That's above my pay grade, Alan, um, but... I can talk for Innsbruck and I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Café Schindler, I'll say it's it is now still going. Um, it is it, it will it will be 100 years old next year in, 19, in 2022 because it was founded in 1922. And um, it's. It is, I think, the only previously Jewish owned business that's still going. Um, and the story of, of, of how it was reinvented by someone else is is quite intriguing in that. Um, so my what happened, obviously, the, it was taken away from the, the cafe was taken away from my grandfather during the war. As Baylor said, it was it became a Nazi officer's drinking club it was hugely successful in that guise. And then at the end of the war, seven years later, for Austria, at least, um, the Nazis all scarpered. The senior ones went into hiding. And very, very surprisingly, my grandfather chose to return to Austria. And very, very, very few Jews returned. And I think there were, there were two families that returned to Winsbrook. Um, the rest wouldn't have just just it, it was just inconceivable that they would return. Anyway, he chose to go back. I think. He just loved the mountains and he wanted his cafe back and he was fairly confident because he had friends and he had a very, very loyal lawyer who had looked after him all the way through and he got the cafe back. Sadly, he only lived until 1952. He died of a heart attack Um, and my father inherited the cafe and that's when things went wrong. My father was a lousy businessman and the cafe got sold. And then it disappeared off the high street so when I said I was at school in Austria um, at that point there was no cafe Schindler on the main high street it just had lived on in people's heads but roll on to 2016 when I returned to Innsbruck um, with my kids in tow and my husband and I was regaling them with my normal stories about this gap long before the book uh, and a year before my father died and um, we were walking down the main high street and i'm telling them that you know their grandfather had this amazing cafe na, 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 na. and they're going yeah mom yeah mum, yeah mum. Mm-hmm. and i look up and there's the cafe in the back my name across the cafe in exactly the same building so i storm across the road um and my kids are thinking oh my god she's going to make a scene this is just going to be so embarrassing mm-hmm. anyway so i go up to the first floor and i said can i speak to the owner please and they, they say, oh, the owner's out, he's on holiday. And I think, okay, fine. All right. And they say, what do you want? I said, well, my name's Schindler, you know, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they go, well, they give me they give his email address and I get in touch via email. And there's a very tentative response because my email has a lawyer sign off and he's thinking, right. oh no, this, this this Schindler's crawled out of the woodwork. She's going to demand some money. I had no, no interest in demanding money. I was just curious. And the following year I meet the guy and he's a young restaurateur. And he said, look, I didn't know anything about your family. I moved to Innsbruck from Salzburg and I wanted to open a cafe and it didn't matter who I asked. whether When I went to the planning office, when I went to the licensing office, when I talked to my brother-in-law, they all said, my friend, it's got to be called Cafe Schindler. Who the hell are these people? Anyway, he went to the local archives, tapped in the name. And then realised that when the when the images all came back from the 1920s and 30s, there was a ready made history. Like you can't buy that kind of heritage.
2: Right. So
3: he decked it out in 1930s Art Deco style, um, and it's a, an incredible success. And I'm, I wish him every success with it. So I'm 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 very pleased that it's there. I have no ambition to run a restaurant. I think I'd be right. terrible at it. <laughs> so I'm very pleased that it's still there, and it's. It says a little something about the resilience of Jewish business right. and commerce and, and important things like that. Because, you know, most of the most of the Jewish businesses went bankrupt because they were starved of resource and funding. And then the names were changed. And so the fact that we've got something that is still operational is amazing. And certainly it's the only thing in Innsbruck. The rest of Europe, I don't I don't know for certain.
1: OK, Bela, you can Here. go and then, you know, will Yeah. We'll, uh, yeah. Go ahead.
2: Yes. Okay, Mariel, um, your book focuses on what happened to the Jews of Western Austria during the lead up to the war. Um, how do you think their experiences differ than that of Jews in other Nazi occupied countries?
3: I think the Jews of Western Austria were particularly unlucky with their Gauleiter. So this was the Gauleiter was the regional governor, basically. And there were 42 of these regional governors throughout the German Reich, and they reported straight to Hitler. And I think the Jews of Western Austria, even though there were very few of them, were particularly unlucky in their, their Gauleiter because he was very obsessively pro-Hitler and anti-Jew. And he, it was basically a competition. He wanted to be the first Gauleiter to make his Gau, his province, Jew-free. So I think that they fared particularly badly, even though there were so few of them. And there's this real central conundrum that you could be so virulently, virulently opposed to people when there are so few of them and they're so inoffensive. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of those central puzzles, I think, of, that, of, that, of the history of that area. And when you look at Kristallnacht, um, the, the, the pogrom in November, It was one of the deadliest pogroms in the whole of the German Reich. So two Jews died that night. One was severely injured and died straight afterwards. And when you think about what the purpose of that that pogrom was, it was not to murder or kill. That was not on the agenda at the time. The purpose was to scare the living daylights out of the Jews so that they left. That's what the official policy was. It was not a kill command. But in Innsbruck, they set out to kill people. They killed two on the night. One died shortly afterwards. And in relation to my grandfather, who was a very prominent Jew, he wasn't. He wasn't political. He ran a cafe. The the order to the five or six or seven people who went to beat him up was, if he dies, if he croaks, it was very colloquial. If he croaks, that's fine too. So there was a real insouciance about how badly they beat him up they if they left him for dead and he died that was fine too and I, so when you say you know how did it how did it differ I think it was a particularly vicious brand of anti-semitism which I think differed to some extent from the rest and very early it was very vicious
2: I encourage our audience to purchase the lost cafe schindler One family, two wars, and the search for truth. Thank you, Mariel, for joining us today. Thank you to Vinus.com for hosting our show. And, of course, thank you to our audience for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to The Definitive Rap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.